Good afternoon. Welcome to Books Sandwiched In. I'm Glenn Walter with the Friends of the Knox County Public Library. Um, we are pleased this week to have um, Elizabeth Wright stepping in for uh, Knoxville attorney Wanda Sobieski, who was unfortunately unable to make it. But uh, she will be discussing the new feminist agenda. Ms. Wright is the YWCA Director of Women's Advocacy and Written Communications. Ms. Wright. Thank you. I, I thank you all for being here today. The book we'll be discussing today is The New Feminist Agenda, Defining the Next Revolution for Women, Work, and Family by Madeline M. Coonan. She was the first woman governor of Vermont, the first woman in the U.S. to serve three terms. She was the Deputy Secretary of Education and Ambassador to Switzerland under Clinton. And she also founded the Global Institute for Sustainable Communities, a nonprofit that works for climate change and a civil society. Um, so that's a little bit about our author. Um, has, how many people in the room, if any, have read the book? <laughs> I was just speaking to someone over here who said he, it had been out at Kroger next to the Pat Summit book, and the lady who puts the books out at Kroger said the Pat Summit book was selling like hotcakes and no one had bought this one. So, <laughs> um, And I said, well, I think maybe the title from my reading of the book might be a little bit misleading. Um, I was kind of surprised, you know, in reading it, looking at the, at the title and then actually getting into depth with some of the content, um, I think, you know, a lot of people do shy away from that word feminist. And I think if they read the book and, and heard about the content, they could relate to it a lot more. Um, she does talk a lot, and we'll get into more of that too, about family issues. And I think she really does frame the new feminist agenda as an agenda for families. Um, and that includes men, children, and a lot of people who are affected by a lot of different issues. So it's really a more inclusive, I think, kind of definition of, of women's issues than I had expected to read and that I think many people would assume. I'm, I was going to say I'm certainly not an expert on this book or on this topic, but then I thought, you know, maybe I am an expert on this issue. I think every woman in this room is probably an expert on this issue and that these things affect all of us in different ways. She really starts out talking about the feminist movement of the 70s, and I just I wanted to share something really quick. I'm also a board member of Jobs with Justice of East Tennessee, and we've been doing a working women's leadership series, trying to get young women involved in leadership and um, trying to look at just recently this past Saturday, we were looking at the context of women in the workplace. And we started way back um, in the 1600s with indentured servitude and went through slavery and then into factory work, into women going into the workforce and in wars, um, and then into, you know, how all of that has changed with immigration, how that affects different women, people of color. Um, and so I think there's a really large context and starting with the 70s kind of, you know, undermines some of that really long history there. But just to kind of keep that all in mind that women's work, you know, a lot of it has been ingrained from before the country was even really founded. Um, so starting with how the book starts to address this, though, speaking of the feminist movement of the 1970s and all of the gains that were made there, um, feminists were the first to call for equality between the sexes so that she does not always change diapers, cook dinner, and do the dishes while he reads the newspaper. She says it was a battle between the sexes, not a truce. In Gender Equality, authors Janet Gornick and Marsha Myers note, feminists argue that women will not and cannot achieve parity with men as long as they shoulder unequal responsibilities for unpaid care work. They suggest that the interests of men, women, and children are essentially in conflict. Children can have more time with their parents only if women reduce their employment commitments and career prospects. Women and men can achieve greater equality in their employment only by reducing their time spent caring for their children. So it kind of really outlines her perspective on family life and also her perspective that, again, this isn't an issue that just affects women. It also affects men. It affects family life. And it affects children. Um, 
The most pressing conflicts of interest arise not between men and women, nor between parents and children, but between the needs of contemporary and current divisions of labor, workplace practices, and social policies. To resolve these conflicts, we do not need to choose sides, but rather to focus our attention on an end vision of what an earning, caring, egalitarian society that promotes the well-being of children might look like. So I think that really kind of, that's in the chapter eight, New Family Portraits, but I thought that that really... Um, does summarize her perspective on this issue, that it is a family issue and not just a, a female issue, which I think also raises some interesting points of conversation, maybe for women who have postponed having a family for career options. Um, this book addresses some of the concerns that women without a family might face or even women in same-sex couples. Um, but for the most part, it does focus on women who are uh, in a family situation, and it, um, that's kind of the framework in which we'll approach this. So looking at the feminist movement of the 70s, she talks about how 30 years later, still we have uh, made a lot of gains, but we still have a lot more to go. Um, 17% of Congress members are women. Um, we, we rank 69th out of 178 countries with women in government leadership positions. 17% of corporate board members are women, which I think is interesting, that parallel to the women in Congress. Um, we still only earn 77 cents for every dollar that a man earns. Um, 3% of Fortune 500 companies are led by women. Um, she mentions that Roe versus Wade is still attacked on a state level in many situations. And we still face issues of sexual assault, abuse, violence against women. These are still prevalent issues. And so we still have a long way to go. Um, she does mention that the good news is that 60% of college undergraduates are women. Half of medical and law students are women. And two-wage earners now make up most families. Um, I'm going to move into another chapter here where she talked about how women leaders make a difference. And there's a section called Why Aren't Women Making It to the Top? Um, Collectively, women and minorities lost ground in America's corporate boardrooms between 2004 and 2010. White men still overwhelmingly dominate corporate boards with few overall gains for minorities since 2004 and a significant loss of seats for African-American men also. Women, particularly minority women, did not see an an appreciable increase in their share of board seats. In a study that surveyed almost 10,000 alumni who graduated between 1996 and 2007 from 26 business schools in Asia, Canada, Europe, and the U.S., it found that less than those graduates were working full-time. So part of what we'll be talking about also is how the economy really affects and impacts the ability of women and work groups to advocate for change in the workplace for everyone and for women as well. Um, female MBAs, though, this same study showed that they earn less from the start. Gender earning gaps appear at the entry level after women receive an MBA and take their first job. Women, on average, were paid $4,600 less than men as a starting salary. The wage gap, which prevents women from ever catching up, is not a matter of different aspirations or even, as is commonly thought, a matter of parenthood. The findings hold for men and women without children also. One possibility is that high-earning women are already thinking ahead on how they will combine caregiving and work, and they don't want to aim for a position that requires their presence 24-7. Another answer may be that they are aware of the trade-off between work and family and consider the trade-off worthwhile only if the job provides as much gratification as being home with the family. If women do opt out, it's not because they can't handle their families. It's because they feel they really can advance. So a lot of women are already in entering the workplace um, thinking about some of the challenges that they're going to face and how workplace policies are going to affect their future family planning and making some decisions before they even actually enter the job market sometimes about what they want to shape their career to look like. Um, Another reason that women may trip on the ladder to the top is that they're not included in the informal networks that build up at places where men typically meet, such as the golf course and the men's room. 
The transfer of power from one person to another in any venue is rarely based on merit alone. It is governed by a complex set of informal rules that are not written down. These rules are transmitted verbally at almost any time in any place, and to understand them, women have to be in the room. One theory to explain the continued meager presence of women in corporate leadership is that women do not negotiate as aggressively as their male counterparts. Politeness has been ingrained. Fear of rejection is high. Some women may be grateful to be chosen for a job in the first place and dare not ask for more. They are more likely than men to assume that the offer was fair and equitable because they are unaware of the salary landscape. They simply do not know how much to ask for. There are 13 female CEOs for every 500 male CEOs, so they're a rare species indeed. Some of the hottest new companies, Facebook, Twitter, Zynga, Groupon, Foursquare, none of them has a female director on its board. PayPal has no women on its five-member board. Apple has one out of seven. Amazon has one out of eight. Google has two out of nine. And um, she's saying, what are the young men who are running these companies thinking? Despite being on the cutting edge of modern technology, they're in a time warp when it comes to women in leadership, not unlike their fathers and grandfathers. Determining who is qualified in hiring and Placing women in leadership positions is a more subjective assessment than most people acknowledge. There are qualified women out there. We just have to look. Sometimes, however, it is women themselves who do not believe they are qualified. Failure to take these risks in hiring women and increasing diversity in leadership is continuing to appoint people who look exactly like the people who preceded them perpetuates the status quo of male leadership. It also deprives an institution of fresh energy and ideas and quite likely a more successful organization. And she talks about how investors and shareholders can, you know, wield some power in making some of these changes. But I thought that kind of brought us up to speed from we have these statistics, but we can also see how these statistics relate to real tangible faces in positions of leadership. And in part of the book that we'll get into a little bit later, she talks a lot about how having women in leadership positions is crucial um, to making some of the changes that are necessary for families and and women today. Um, So... Framing this whole, you know, book basically is an age-old problem. How can women have a job and take care of the children, the elderly, their families, and the sick and their families? Um, The responsibilities, she says, must be shared, and she calls for a revolution, again, not for women, but for families. And as I mentioned, the economy is going to be a challenge in all of this. Um, There's a schism between work and family, and one, there's a theory or, you know, a perception that one of them has to be sacrificed. It's interesting, when I was doing the women's, working women's leadership, I was talking to a friend before that happened about it and just what we were going to be talking about. And she works for Enterprise Car Rentals. And uh, she's in a position where she sells, you know, she kind of is in a male-dominated environment because she's a car salesman selling their rental cars to dealerships. And she was talking about how she was sent because she's one of the top sellers to an enterprise management uh, training with the, one of the top management women in enterprise. And it was about women in management positions within that private company. And she was, you know, kind of saying, there's an anecdote I had in here for later, but she said, you know, once you talk about sexual harassment in the workplace and, um, you know, if you're going to get time off for maternity leave, she was like, I didn't get the point of us women being in the room. She said, what else is there to talk about? And so I thought that was kind of interesting. And then she shared the story of the, the woman who spoke, the leader at Enterprise. And the woman was there to talk about how she had advanced within the company and, um, you know, how she had, you know, succeeded in this male-dominated environment. And that was what she was focused on. She was focused on her career accomplishments, on her career trajectory. And all the women that were in the room were asking her, how did you do all this and still maintain your family? The woman, the manager, was married. She had children. And those were the questions that the women in the audience kept asking her. And my friend said that the woman was getting agitated and annoyed. And she was like, I'm not here to talk about 
being a woman and having a family, I'm here to talk about my career. And this particular manager, you know, acknowledged that for her to get to that place, her family had sacrificed. She said, I didn't always have meals with my kids. I didn't always know what they ate for dinner. I wasn't always there. And that was the choice that I made to have the success in my career. Some of us feel that we have to make those sacrifices and we have to make those choices. And this book is really about having that holistic experience and being able to have a career and be successful without, you know, sacrificing your family and your your life. If, even if you don't have a family, there are other interests that are, you know, uh, germane to women's health and well-being, I think, if you don't have a family. So she says it's time to mobilize a constituency for change. Um, That would be women with men standing beside them. And she also talks about a broad constituency of people who are affected by some of these same issues. Women, obviously men, um, who have to carry the burden of single-handedly supporting the family alone, missing out on time with their children, just with the weight of all that pressure on them. A lot of women right now are single mothers. Forty percent of women right now are single working mothers facing some of those same challenges. Um, so she says, when the eye becomes we, a cause begins to move from the fringe to the center. So she really talks a lot about how these issues that affect women affect men, affect children. They affect the elderly. They affect the disabled. And they affect a lot of people who need more flexibility in their lives um, and how the current work environment doesn't necessarily allow for that. She acknowledges that there's a seeming disconnect in talking about f- feminism and it coming full circle back to how you know it's focused just on the family. But she says women have to work now. In the 70s, you know, a lot of women wanted to work. One of the things that we did in the timeline I was talking about for the Working Women's Leadership Series was looking at women in the 70s in Appalachia wanting to access jobs. And there was a group, our mayor, Madeline Rojero, actually became the director of it, the Coal Employment Project in the 70s. Um, And that was started by women who wanted to access non-traditional jobs. And they created an organization and they used legislation, which is another key point of the book is, you know, utilizing the policies that exist and asking for expansion of those policies to make some of these gains. And the Coal Employment Project, which ultimately was led by Madeline Rojero, um, they really used legislation to make some gains to get women in non-traditional positions of leadership and into these jobs in coal mining, in construction. And they trained each other. They used policy, lobbying, things like that to make those advances So she says we got out of the house after feminism, but we didn't demand that the government support that through policy and legislation. And so a lot of the things that she talks about are having paid family leave, workplace flexibility, quality child care. She talks some about the class divisions that happened in the 70s, and I think that was another thing that was interesting to me, kind of putting all this in context when I talked about this long history from indentured servitude up until today, you know, throughout time, um, there has been a disconnect even in women when they were working for the right to vote. Um, some of those women were also anti-abolitionists. They didn't necessarily include women who were enslaved in the right to vote. When the feminist movement happened, some women saw that as a kind of upper class move um, and that they didn't include low-income women women of color in that. Getting maternity leave was seen as a middle class issue, something that didn't really affect women who, you know, work a low wage job or an unskilled labor where that's not going to be an option, unfortunately. And that lower income women in the feminist movement were more interested in reproductive rights and being safe from domestic violence and, and issues like that. Um, some of these divisions today exist in women who some of those, you know, what was it, 17% who are in Congress being divided on issues that affect all women, all families. They seem like things that everybody could agree on, but um, party politics are driving a wedge there. Um, I wanted to read something interesting that she had in here about that. 
looking at some of the legislation that she thinks, you know, could really make some advances. The Fair Labor Standards Act was an attempt to eliminate the nation's lingering disparity between what women and men earn for the same jobs. It passed the House in 2009 when Nancy Pelosi was speaker, but it failed to make it through the Senate the following year. And the people who were lobbying for this was several different organizations and the equal pay advocates. They were two votes short of passing this. And the woman who was leading it said we didn't get Olympia Snow and Susan Collins. And both of them were Republican senators from Maine. It was really shocking to me, she said, because both of these women are really committed to women's equality. The fierce party polarization that has overtaken Congress has made it difficult for women from either side of the aisle to become sisters. One woman believes, a former New Jersey state senator, believes that the answer to the passage of a federal paid family leave law and other legislation that would allow more flexibility for women is to get all the congresswomen together. The problem is that even if all the congresswomen supported paid family leave, they would not prevail because they comprise barely 17% of the lawmakers. Not all women see the issue the same way. But every woman alive today has been touched by the feminist movement in one way or another. And many young women can't relate until they experience a work family imbalance themselves. That was where I had my story about my friend. Because of the advances that have been made, young women may not always recognize the things that they're facing in the workplace and the challenges that are still there and the inequities that still exist. Um, at this Working Women's Leadership Series that we had on Saturday, Gloria Johnson, our representative who's a teacher, um, she was there and she said, I never felt like the girl in the room until I entered the legislature. And so she, you know, said that she'd been in all these different working positions, different career paths and had never had that experience of feeling discriminated against or belittled because she was a woman. But now that she is in the legislature, she said she feels invisible a lot of times. She's been surprised by some of the things that the men will say, forgetting that there's a woman in the room and that she's really had to assert herself, you know, to make herself heard and to make those points. And if any of you know Gloria, then, you know, she's, I'm sure, doing a very good job of that. Um, But I thought that was interesting, too. That that was the first time in her life, you know, that she really felt the sting of that. So she talks about the work-family mismatch and that today's workplace is a relic that still adheres to the ideal male worker who is immune from family work. And she asks why. We have changed from a society that delegated to women the care of children, the sick, and the elderly to a society that pretends these groups do not exist. That's kind of the point, I think, is that a lot of people, when women and their lives and the holistic viewpoint of everything that we experience every day and all the different things that we have to juggle, it's not just women who are affected. It's um, the majority of people in the country. And um, a lot of these different issues could lift up a lot of different boats. Um, So looking at, uh, she calls it social Darwinism and the rise of childhood poverty. Work-family conflicts have created a social Darwinian approach to raising children and caring for the elderly, sick, and disabled. Um, There's an increasingly high rate of childhood poverty. The U.S. has the highest in the developed world, with 22% of our children living in poverty. And she really talks about, again, how this issue doesn't just hurt those who are affected by it, but it hurts our entire society. When children are living in poverty, she goes on later to talk about early childhood education and child care. Um, when children are denied opportunities to develop uh, in their very youngest stages, it leads to um, a backlog and of advancement throughout time. And it can lead to children being incarcerated, dropping out of high school, an unskilled workforce, all of these things that hurt all of us in the future. And so she's really talking about trying to Um, again, lift that up to say that if we make some of these significant changes, it could improve everything, but it really requires um, a short-term investment for a long-term payoff. And that's very hard to communicate to people. 
Um, but she says the conversation is changing. Um, women in the workplace, uh, she talks about some of the different advances that we have had. In 1978, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act was passed, so um, women can't be fired for seeking accommodations while pregnant. Um, 1993, the Family Medical Leave Act um, was proposed. It provides 12 weeks of unpaid leave with job guarantees for companies that have 50 or more staff people. And if the employee has worked 1,250 hours in the previous year, and that allows those 12 weeks of unpaid leave to um, provide for your own illness or for the illness of a family member or for a new child in the family. So looking toward more change, she talks about men as allies. Um, there are changing social norms and um, up with unemployment. Also, that provides an opportunity for people. She says there are more men at home now to see the effects of the, how this imbalance um, really hurts people and hurts families. But she says women still put in two times uh, as much time in housework and child care as men in the family do. Other allies in lifting this up, as I mentioned, she talks about labor, uh, people in labor unions, which we you know aren't very powerful here in the South, but that as they're fighting for workers' rights, that fighting for family rights is a way to expand that base of support and make some more change. Um, people who are disabled who could also benefit from having a flexible work schedule and from having paid sick leave and things like that are allies in this fight. Um, the religious-based community that supports family values um, and having children taken care of and um, educated and safe is an ally. And even businesses is a big challenge, but she makes the case that when we invest in employees and having a skilled workforce and when you do attract employees who are um, you know, want to work for a company that has some of those great benefits that she's shooting for our society to have, um, you have a more loyal workforce and that provides more returns in your bottom dollar in the long run. Ultimately, it requires a short-term investment now to enjoy the long-term benefit of a skilled workforce that can sustain the economy and social security and et cetera when we are old. Um, so then she kind of goes into a comparison between the United States and the rest of the world, which I think isn't always the most helpful. You know, countries like Denmark and Finland and Switzerland have these amazing policies where women get, um, you know, and men also actually get a year off for each child that they have. So if you have twins, you automatically have two years of paid maternity leave and men have the same amount of leave. And that kind of led to an interesting uh, point that I'll get to in just a second. But um, so there are some really great policies out there. They require, you know, a tax base to pay for those. But the payoff is that it's not just for low income families or those with the most needs. These benefits translate to everyone in society. So she talks about that as possibly being uh, a point when we're talking to legislators and politicians in the U.S. A lot of it is seen as, um, you know, the word entitlement society is used. And um, some of us, you know, feel different ways about phrases like that. But when it's framed that only a few people are going to benefit or that it's seen as some people carrying the weight for others, um, that can be a real obstacle in the path to making change. And she kind of just lifted up some of these other countries where these benefits are seen across the board regardless of income. Everybody gets the same kind of benefits as being one way that we might be able to see some of these changes in the U.S. But what we're currently facing in trying to get some of these changes Business opposition, obviously, we do have weak labor unions, and so advocating for worker rights in any form is not um, the easiest. She talks a lot about how um, the focus on abortion within women's rights groups is a wedge factor that does prevent people from working on different sides. 
um, a big class and economic divide that's, you know, strengthened again by unemployment right now um, and the economy. Extreme partisanship. Um, there's a distrust in government right now that also makes, you know, trying to get some of these laws passed and enforced um, another challenge. Again, the old belief in American exceptionalism. We can't admit that anything's wrong here. We've been doing it right for so long, right? So that's another challenge. Um, and the inability to form broad coalitions. And I think that's an important one. Um, a lot of groups are unwilling to compromise on issues, even when they have mutual interests. Um, you know, I'm thinking about environmental activists. We're thinking about different groups for workers' rights, disabled groups. There's, you know, if they could find some common ground and allow, you know, themselves to kind of ignore some of the fine details, hold your convictions, but find a way to work together. She really pushes for broader coalitions as a big way to make some changes here. So then again, she talks about the high rate of employment and the supply and demand of workers. They have the lower hand to demand rights when basic job access is such a problem. And this means that the scarce resources that we have um, in our tax base and in our economy end up going to those with the greatest need. So it goes to, again, low-income people rather than everyone. And she talks about how in those countries, those European countries, where they do provide some of those benefits to everyone, um, for instance, there's a thing called father leave, um, where men get the same you know, benefits to take time off when there's a new child in the family as women do that also removes hiring biases from women Um, when women go into the workplace they're not so worried about taking that time off for the family because they know that it's not a special circumstance or a special request men who are in families are going to be asking for those same kind of things when we do have an unemployment if there is flexible work schedules and you do get some time off when you have a need for an illness or a new child there might be an opportunity for new workers to come in and take over some of those roles in the meantime and it could expand the job force um, so it could be a win-win an interesting side note in all of this the countries with the most conservative gender roles have the lowest fertility rates. And she mentioned Spain and Italy because women in those countries recognize that I'm going to be expected to take care of these children. I'm also not going to have access to a high-paying job in order to take care of these children. And if the country doesn't have benefits available to women in those positions, um, then they kind of limit their motherhood role um, because they don't have the support that they would need to take care of themselves. Um, and it's connected to a, the economy again, um, except in the U.S., and that is primarily because of our high teen pregnancy rate, um, which I think kind of speaks to the need for starting some of these conversations about work and family and realities of the economy and our legislation and how we support each other um, at a younger age. Having a baby in the U.S. is the fastest way to fall into poverty, especially for single mothers. Some women get pushed out of the workforce. Um, The lack of paid family leave, there's not an option for part-time work, there's no flexibility in their schedule. And she says the solution is for the government to bear some of these expenses. And again, that the problem there in the United States is that that requires taxes. And that when we lack those broad coalitions, and when we're not able to see the connections and how they affect all of us, it makes it really hard to build a base of support for those things. But she says the countries that do have higher taxes pay for less income disparity between the rich and the poor. They have lower childhood poverty rates. They have higher test scores. They have more time with their families. And those benefits kind of lift up everyone in those countries. In the United Kingdom, the expanded paid family leave, they went from six weeks recently to a year. That was in 1997. Um, And they can transfer six months of that one year of paid leave to the father. Um, That move, I thought this was kind of 
an interesting point, was made by the conservative party to curry to women voters. So we know right now that after some of the elections that there are, you know, different parties trying to reach out to different constituency bases. And this was a way that did it was by, you know, kind of um, expanding some of the things for for women and for families um, that weren't their typical voting base. So that might be something to think about when we're talking to our, you know, representatives, if we're interested in advocating for some of these things. So then she goes on to look at kind of the history of the U.S., American exceptionalism, political divisions in the states, and the fact, again, that, you know, we kind of refuse to see or admit that we have a problem and that we may be wrong. She talks about how we're a neighborly, charitable country. People want to help each other out. People want to do the right thing. Um, but relying on individual support or just basic, you know, donating to your church and helping people out that way, um, writing a check to your favorite organization once a year, really can address the big picture and that we really have to pull in the content text of this issue when we're having these conversations um, with our legislators and with our friends who are going to vote um, and with the organizations that we work within um, and in the workplace for ourselves as well. Um, some states are tackling the issue in California, in Washington, and New Jersey. They have paid family leave now, and that was brought about by coalitions of women, labor workers, and the Legal Aid Society um, who fought for that. And they have paid sick days um, in one state, Connecticut, um, also in cities like San Francisco, D.C., and Seattle. So obviously a lot of the more progressive places are further ahead of us and further ahead of the rest of the country from some of these things. And she says, how did they do it? How did they make some of these changes in getting paid sick days and getting more flexible work schedules. Um, they countered the business opposition by making that case that what's good for families and for workers is good for the company's bottom line in the long run. Um, a lot of people today are voting with their dollars, too. You know, there's a, a rise, I think, in consumer awareness and in people um, making consumer decisions based on how the company operates, how it treats its employees, um, and how it treats the environment. So that's another way to, you know, wield some power there. Um, gaining bipartisan support was another way that they did it in these places, forming broad coalitions, being prepared for the proper timing. I think really taking advantage of um, key issues and points when the mood really hits. That's a big challenge always for people who are trying to make change, but it's a it's an important one. Um, really framing the messaging, using personal stories, how people are affected is is really important. We've seen some of that happen here um, in our state recently. And realizing that the status quo is not inevitable. So making that case for business, win-win workplace flexibility, um, really making that case for families. Families know that when you have that flexibility, when you have paid sick leave in these issues, um, the parental baby bonding is invaluable. You have improved child development. You have improved health rates. But for businesses, again, a big point is that they get to attract and retain a talented workforce. It reduces turnover and it increases productivity. So in communicating the business benefits, the challenges in that are that they're unknown and they're misunderstood. Most people don't realize or want to know that, um, you know, for every dollar that we invest in early childhood education, it translates to $7 in income in the private sector when that child is a skilled workforce person who's, you know, in a committed career job. So um, the benefits are hard to quantify because they vary. We are very resistant to change, as we know. Um, and businesses resist government intrusion. They don't want to be told how to run their business, which is understandable. But there, we, there is some common ground there um, in workplace flexibility. And she talks about how a lot of companies, especially those that are, you know, have women in leadership positions, um, do tend to provide some of those uh, benefits that other companies aren't. So we're seeing those changes, even if it's not necessarily in legislation. Slowly but surely, they are coming in um, just informally through silo kind of places, adopting better policies. 
Um, how many people, if you're working today, um, have a, a workplace that you feel like is amenable to your family needs and has a flexible uh, schedule if you were sick, if you needed to take off quickly for a child, if you had an emergency that came up? Um, how many of you feel like your, your company might accommodate that? Okay, so I'd say that's maybe about half half of the people in the room. And again, I mean, it, probably the people that are in this room are, are not a very good pool to draw from. I'm assuming um, we might, you know, be working for social services or for government agencies or things like that. But um, I, I think a really important thing to remember in all of this is that even when we do fight for these rights, um, making sure that we are fighting for those um, in different positions than we are. You know, those hourly wage workers, the pe- women who are working at fast food restaurants and things like that. Um, I think that... We can't leave anyone behind when, we, when we're trying to make these positive changes. I'm going to go over some of these legislative things and talk about a few things that we can do here. The League of Women Voters here in town, I think, is a great organization. The Jobs with Justice, our working women's leadership group, has a, a new meeting coming up in May 11th. We're going to be talking about knowing your rights in the workplace. So everyone's invited to that, men and women alike. And at the YWCA, I run the advocacy committee, and um, I've just been there since January, so we're just getting the committee off the ground, but it's open to anyone who wants to work to advocate for women. So there are different avenues and different ways to get involved in this issue. So looking at working families by the numbers, 1,482,333 Tennessee women work, making up 47% of the state workforce. Um, 103,000 Tennesseans gave birth between 2008 and 2009. These were the most recent numbers. Um, 70% of Tennessee children live in families where all their parents work. Uh, 150,000 Tennessee grandparents are taking care of their grandchildren under the age of 18. And 770,000 Tennesseans serve as family caregivers. Our existing family-friendly workplace laws, I didn't know this, I learned some things. Certain Tennessee women workers have greater maternity disability leave rights under state law than under the Federal Family and Medical Leave Act. Employers with more than 100 employees must provide full-time women workers who've had one year of job tenure with up to four months of unpaid leave for adoption, pregnancy, childbirth, and nursing an infant. Um, we have a time and place to pump. Employers of any size must provide all female workers reasonable break time and a place in close proximity to their work area other than a toilet stall to express breast milk at work for as long as the employee's child is an infant. So those are two of the existing family-friendly laws that we have here. There wasn't any legislation that was currently pending that they mentioned. I didn't have a chance to look into that. But if anybody is aware of any that we could all make phone calls about, um, I'd be glad to discuss that. One big thing that she really talks about is the Paycheck Fairness Act and the fact that women are still earning 77 cents on the dollar to every man. African-American women are paid only 64 cents and Latina women are paid just 55 cents for every dollar paid to non-Hispanic white men. In this economy, women and families cannot afford to bear the burden of this discrimination, and passing the Paycheck Fairness Act would be an important step in helping women challenge and eliminate discriminatory pay practices in the workplace. For employees, it would protect against retaliation for discussing salaries with your colleagues. It would require employers to prove that pay disparities exist for legitimate job-related reasons. It would remove an inequality in wage discrimination law so that remedies available to plaintiffs in Equal Pay Act claims would be the same as damages available to plaintiffs who file wage discrimination claims under other laws. It would remove other obstacles in the act for plaintiffs to participate in class action lawsuits challenging pay discrimination, and it would create a negotiation skills training program for women and girls. So kind of addressing that thing that we talked about at the very beginning where women, and I've been a victim of this myself, don't know what to ask for, are afraid to ask for it, and therefore automatically start out your entire career a step behind others. 
For employers, it would recognize excellence in pay practices, and it would provide assistance to all businesses to help them with their equal pay practices. For enforcement agencies, that was another big thing that we can have laws on the books, but if they're not enforced, they're kind of no good. And if um, initiatives aren't funded, that's another problem. So those are some things to think about in advocating for change. But it would ensure that the Department of Labor utilizes a full range of investigatory tools to uncover wage discrimination, including collecting wage data from federal contractors. And that was the big thing I was talking about with the Coal Employment Project and some of the other groups there. They were really looking at how federal contractors don't always open up those opportunities to women and to minorities, and they used those laws and that discrimination to file complaints, to file suit, and to achieve the change that they wanted and access some of those positions. It would direct the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission to conduct a survey of available wage information to assist federal agencies in enforcing discrimination laws, and they would conduct studies and review research and data to provide information on how to correct illegal wage disparities. That's the Paycheck Fairness Act. Um, This was from October 2012, so it's not too terribly out of date. The Family and Medical Leave Act is celebrating 20 years of job-protected leave, um, and that was intended to be just a first step. Most part-time workers and nearly 50% of full-time workers are not eligible for leave under the FMLA. Millions more who are eligible cannot afford to take unpaid leave. So there's a national partnership for um, women and families that's working hard to safeguard the law and to expand it to cover more workers and promote a national paid leave program. Paid sick days is another campaign. More than 970,000 Tennessee workers, about 46% of the state's private sector workforce, are not able to take a paid sick day when they are ill. This is another area where this issue really kind of crosses lines between not just women, but um, people who are suffering from a disability or who are older. Uh, Many different issues, many different people are affected by this issue. There's a paidsickdays.org campaign. And fair pay, again, the fair pay, the wage act. Um, those were some different, you know, acts that are currently under discussion that she said that we could advocate for. And forming those broad-based coalitions was really how, um, you know, the book ends. I'll read her conclusion here, and then we can have a quick discussion. We, the richest, the most compassionate nation on earth, have the ability to respond to the call for action. To succeed, we have to jettison three firm beliefs, that we can't afford the expense of making these changes, that family policies impede job growth, and that the family is solely a private domain and that we alone are responsible for taking care of ourselves and our children. Instead, we must embrace these beliefs, that the cost to the nation of inaction is greater than the cost of action, that investment in family and work policies fosters economic growth, and that we must share this investment for our children, our grandchildren and the nation, and I would add, for ourselves. Um, We will all benefit when we take care of the youngest among us. It's time to strengthen the institution that we all Americans of every political persuasion value the most, the family. We cannot wait for the perfect moment. Now is the right time to begin. Hello, uh, I have a daughter. You know, having a daughter has opened my eyes to inequalities around the world. And uh, I like the fact that uh, there have been advances made over the years. Such a long way to go still. The number of women in Congress is uh, at a a high, and I think women tend to find consensus rather than uh, uh, the polarized uh, sort of condition that we're in. And uh, I guess I see that as being hopeful that we will get unpolarized at, at least to some extent and wonder about your thoughts on that. I I definitely agree. I think she made a really strong point in the book that when women are, you know, in leadership positions, you want to put on a mask. You don't want to, you know, give in to the gender stereotypes and be seen as 
you know, uh, what's the word too emotional or pandering, you know? Um, so women sometimes take an even sterner stance just to maintain that, you know, I'm a woman in this position and I can be just as strong as a man. I think that's an interesting dynamic that goes on, but I think that at the end of the day, those issues. And as we work to just raise awareness about this stuff and get more women in positions and talk about it more, that kind of challenge and that kind of feeling I would hope would fade away. And that feeling of this is my experience. And as a woman, I am an expert on this issue that women would be more willing to work together toward these issues and bipartisanship. I think that's necessary. It's a good point too, that I think she also talks about men who have daughters and, you know, are sometimes working from home that opens up people's perspectives and, and changes the way you look at things. But hi. Thank you uh, for this program. I think it's important that women and men work together in groups and coalitions and, and even grassroots or, uh, groups to uh, voice concern and, um, and try to make a difference. I work with a group that's a national group. It's called Vision 2020. It's with Drexel University. Um, People, women and men from every state in the United States are involved in this project, and we're looking at what we think are the five major issues of equity involving women, which include pay equity, women in high-level positions, senior-level positions, and women on corporate boards. But the family-friendly issue is also very important. We look to educate employers about the importance of family-friendly policies and then thinking about importance of educating young children about valuing the differences that people bring to uh, school to the workplace and everywhere else. And then the other issue is mobilizing women to vote mm-hmm. because women can really make a difference uh, and can do more if we really voice our opinions in our vote. This NAAUW, our state president, is here. They are working on a lot of issues, including pay equity. And there's so many groups that I encourage people to get involved and to, to really voice your opinion, writing letters uh, to your legislators and writing articles to the newspaper. It's a continuous process to try to make a difference and try to make a change. And everybody has to participate in it, not just us women who have been around a lot longer, but the young women. We really need to encourage them to get involved in the process and to understand that everything we have today took a lot to get there. My name is Robin Hill, and I'm an engineer. I worked in a very male organization. I was able to hire maybe 10 women who were engineers. Across the board, those engineers had a better rapport with their customers than any other engineers I had on the whole. Uh, They seemed to listen well. They were technically grounded well, made good judgment decisions, and it was just a joy that once once a person, an engineer worked with a customer and had that experience, they always asked for him back again. And that was a problem because they <laughs> didn't have all that many people to, to give them back. But my daughter is an engineer also, an electrical engineer. And she went to work in that organization, and and she found it to be a very male-dominated organization. Mm -hmm. To this day, she still has, in in the engineering business, she still has the problem of that particular field being mostly male-dominated. That's changing slowly. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that field and probably others, too. Yeah, that was another thing she talked about was women in the medical and the sciences fields um, and in law. But it does look like those numbers are growing. More women are entering those kind of departments when they go into college. Um, so maybe we will see some changes in the next 
next few years. I talk about educating young women as they enter the workforce. I'm wondering if she says anything about educating girls and Mm -hmm. uh, young boys at an earlier age uh, about these attitudes. That's interesting. She talks a lot about early childhood education and the importance of child care. Um, You know, I think to change the whole face of the workforce in the future. To my knowledge, I don't remember reading anything about training young men um, and recognizing that this is a problem and the effects that it has. Um, the one thing she did talk about that's kind of similar to that, um, or young women necessarily, was mentoring and how important mentoring is. Um, and she talked about how still, though, most women who are in high positions and CEO positions, they had a mentor, but four out of five of those women, their mentor was male. Having young women leaders come up is really important. Um, that was something we heard at the Working Women's Leadership Summit, too, from women who'd been organizers from way back, and the younger women were organizing this. It's really important that intergenerational combination of knowledge and experience and so um, you know making the way for young people to step in and have a say um, and also you know sharing with them how we got to the point that we are today and sharing that experience of how we can make change is really important Um, and mentoring finding young women that you know are in your your company and um, lifting them up and sharing what you know and giving them opportunities to to learn and grow um, is really vital that was a big step that she said would make a difference. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.